Welcome to Nature Calls, Conversations from the Hudson Valley. Our team's goal is to present science-based information about gardening and all things nature in New York's Hudson Valley. Host Gene and Tim, along with team members Teresa and Linda, are master gardener volunteers for New York's Columbia and Greene counties. So if you're interested in gardening or nature or nuggets of information about what's happening outside your door, settle in. Enjoy the conversation. Whatever the season, we have something to say. Hi, I'm Tim McKenalty. And I'm Jean Thomas. And welcome to Nature Calls, conversations from the Hudson Valley. We really have a good show today, don't we, Jean? It's a pretty exciting one. Now, we're conversations from the Hudson Valley, but we're talking to the people from Wild Hudson Valley. Excellent. I like that. It's Justin Wexler and Anna Plattner. And they came and talked to us about all kinds of things about living native. They have ecosystems going on. They have a CSA for wild plants. Excellent. And they have a wonderful baby. So when you hear the noises <laughs> in the background, that's the baby who joined them because their babysitter didn't show. We love baby and dog noises in the background, don't we? When they're other people's. Yeah. And we're also talking to Robin Stapley, our fellow master gardener. And she's going to talk about permaculture. Robin has been doing hugel culture, which is a permaculture form. I love hugel culture. I love the word. I just like I love the hoog- word. Yeah. 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 It's very cool, though, right? Yeah. And it's a whole thing where you dig up a big hole and you put down a bunch of wood and then you put the soil back on top of it. And she has been doing that for years and she's got the biggest rhubarb crop you've ever seen. It, it makes wonderful soil and it's really natural and you don't have to add a lot of chemicals or fertilizer or anything like that. And she's also talking about winter sowing, right? And the winter sowing, she does this whole magic thing with uh, recycled milk jugs and she puts the seed into the soil in the milk jug. Isn't that a song? It and then, is. Yeah, I think it is. I'm going to yeah. sing it now. And then puts it outside for the winter and come spring, there's all kinds of seedlings. I want to try this. It's, it sounds really easy and foolproof, and I'm bad at seed starting. All so. you need is milk jugs and duct tape. So this is going to be a really good show, right? We're going to enjoy the heck out of it. Excellent. Hello, welcome to Nature Calls, conversations from the Hudson Valley. I'm Jean Thomas. And I'm Teresa Golden. Today we're chatting with Anna Plattner and Justin Wexler of Wild Hudson Valley in Freehold, New York. Anna has a B.S. cum laude in natural resources from Cornell, has actually worked for Cornell Cooperative Extension of Green and Columbia Counties, and was a former manager of American Ginseng Farm, the largest wild simulated ginseng farm in the world. Justin has a B.A. in history and a professional certificate in environmental policy from Bard College. Oh, and an MA in teaching, also from Bard. He's also a former Cornell Cooperative Extension employee. That's a lot of credentials, but wait, there's more. Justin is writing a book about ethnoecology. That's a result of years of research on the local indigenous practices and customs within the native ecology. That's quite a resume. You do know we're going to ask you a pretty easy question, so you might be overprepared. But let's start with what you do anyway. Uh, I've looked at your website and your Facebook page, and you do a lot of things to educate and engage the public with our greatest resource, the Native world around them. 
Why don't you list a few of the projects you have ongoing, and then we can go down the list. I'm really curious about several things. Yeah, and today we have our baby with us in the background. So if you hear a little babbling, that's Karina. She's 11 months old. So our newest project that we have going on is our EcoCamp. Since 2013, we've been teaching about ecology, agroforestry, the native history of the Hudson Valley, and we would always have people come for you know a few-hour workshop, and we wanted to have a way to give people a more immersive experience. So this year we launched four campsites on our property, on our forest farm, and it's, in, it's on the border of Freehold and Caro. So sometimes we say Caro, sometimes Freehold, and now we can host people for full weekends. Like Friday night we do stargazing and storytelling and s'mores, Saturday morning uh, nature walks, and often a sort of guest program or themed workshop in the afternoon. And Sunday morning we can do bird watching and a tour of our forest farm. So it's a great way to have people come for a whole weekend and really get to know them and help them connect with both our history and our current natural world. Is it for kids or adults too? It's for anyone. We get a lot of families with you know, teenagers, younger kids, retirees, and younger couples as well, everyone. <laughs> but that's just one of the many things that we do. Justin, do you want to talk about the forest farm and wild harvest boxes? Sure. So after spending over two decades, I started early on in high school exploring what the world would have looked like in the Hudson Valley, Catskill Mountains, and region around in the years before contact, before the settlers came four centuries ago. And really, I've spent time trying to understand what the relationship was between the native people who lived here and the land around them, how they shaped the landscape. Um, and how the practices that they used to manage the land would have enriched the biodiversity. And that work, and I'll circle around back to the wild harvest boxes in a second, because and this will all make sense. Without a time machine, that work relies on a lot of archival research, looking at archaeological reports, but also connecting with members of their contemporary Lenape and Mohican communities, which today are found in Wisconsin, Ontario, and Oklahoma, where they still, many people hold a wealth of knowledge about plant medicines and edible plants. So we came up with this idea years ago, but didn't actually get around to doing it until last year, of creating a CSA. So CSA, Community Supported Agriculture, is a way in which local people can support a local farm by subscribing to a certain amount of produce over the course of a selection of months over the growing season. And in our wild harvest box, what we do is focus almost totally strictly on native plants that were important in the diets of the people who lived here for thousands of years. Mostly wild plants, but also rare ancient cultivars of corn, squash, sunflowers, beans, etc. The only exception being a number of very valuable agroforestry forest farming crops that we are growing in order to show people that there are all these interesting foods that you can grow yourself in your woods. Because each one of these boxes, it's more than just receiving seven or eight seasonal ingredients a month, but comes with a whole write-up going into the ecology and history and the cultural value between each of the ingredients, as well as exploring how they can be used in cooking today. 
So really, just like the camp and the walks and workshops we do, everything we do is geared towards connecting people with the land here, with the history, and helping people to form a better relationship with the other species around us. Okay, so we need to know, are there recipes? So we rarely provide a full recipe, the exception being when we provide different native corn varieties that are used for making hominy and hardwood ashes. So we'll give very, very detailed instructions on how to hull corn to make hominy with it. Um, Mostly we just point people in the right direction and we'll say such and such wild green can be cooked as you would spinach. So we'll compare it to something that people are familiar with. So you're translating. Yeah, basically. Yeah, Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. great. That's great. Now, I know you do a lot locally with the Cooperative Extension, with nature walks at the Seusla Forest, as well as your own property. How many walks do you do in a year in, in these programs? I know you're very busy. That's a good question. Well, during the pandemic, we really decided that we wanted to go like full out with Wild Hudson Valley and try to make it so that neither of us you know, needed to have off-farm jobs. So uh, we really ramped up our walks and workshops. On our property, we pretty much have at least one program every weekend, but then we also work with Cooperative Extension or and other like conservation organizations and historic sites throughout the Hudson Valley to lead walks and workshops as well. For example, this weekend we're leading a, a night walk at Burger Hill in Rhinebeck. It's this really large hill that they have on a preserve. It's a Winnicky preserve. And so Justin's going to lead a walk up in the dark and look at stars and talk about native star lore. And then on Sunday, we're having a a program for a project we've been working on for a while now, a native garden installation up in Round Top. So it's, there's like a whole combination of different projects that we have going on at all times, and we love it. Well, I was surprised that you get quite a turnout at all of these walks. I stopped by when you were doing one across the street from the Acre office. You had 25 people show up. In the middle of about a 95-degree day. <laughs> that was a hot day. That, that's just crazy. That's phenomenal. It's, you know, it's been great because more than ever, people are seeking to connect with the land in a way that I think, you know, even just 15 or 20 years ago, there wasn't as much interest. And, it, you know, it's, every bit of interest helps because we want to help people who are not just like our little baby was very lucky because she gets to crawl around in the forest floor. She was already picking and eating her own, her own wild strawberries at nine months old. But people who have not had the opportunities that she has to help them feel comfortable with the outdoors. You established your business in 2013. So you're almost a decade old. Here's what we usually ask. From your successes and mistakes, what hope do you have for the future of both your endeavor and the world in general? Yeah, that's a tough question. So, as I mentioned at the beginning, we started our eco camp just this year. And so while we might be approaching 10 years old, it's really only been a few years now that we've really launched Wild Hudson Valley into a a larger organization than just doing walks on a part-time basis. So... I think our our main hope and goal for our own organization is that the eco camp will grow and thrive over the next 10 years. We've really enjoyed hosting all of our guests this summer, and we're already brainstorming about all the cool programs we're going to be able to do next year with our guests. 
in terms of what do we hope for the world in general, I think going on the theme Justin just was talking about, we really hope that more people are able to connect with the natural world and, and care for it and value it and in a way that creates abundance and helps the natural world to thrive down the, in the future. Something really special about our area is that we have the Agroforestry Research Center right here, right up the road. And a half hour away, we have the Hike Preserve and Biological Research Station. So one of the things that I find so unique about this area to the north of the Catskill Mountains is that we have places like CCE and the Agroforestry Research Center right here, or the Hike Preserve and Biological Research Station just to our north. And, you know, both, both here and the Hike Preserve were hugely influential to Anna and myself growing up. And I think it's, you know, really special to have so many like-minded people living in the same place. And especially as the world becomes more turned towards trying to reconnect with really our ancestral way of life because human as humans you know 99.9 percent of our history we were living very close to the earth and it was only very recently that we started to break that connection and so now as people start to turn towards that i think our area is going to become more important towards helping to facilitate that with all the great educators that we have up here do you think that reconnection will help us adapt better to what's coming from a climate change point of view? I hope so. At at the very least, just the empathy that I think people gain towards other species and towards the landscape as a whole will help towards people making better decisions, whether that be towards something as small as, you know, the vehicle that you drive or you know, the food that you're eating towards the much larger, more important decisions when it comes to, you know, political choices, maybe. I think that every little bit helps in that, helping the people to empathize and care about and realize that they're part of a greater whole will ultimately help society on a much larger level. Empathy. That's very, very interesting viewpoint. This has been fun especially because you brought your bonus, who is, is, I think, absolutely your stake in the future. You, you've got the belief and the, and the abilities to maybe help everybody else be able mm. to reproduce. And she's gorgeous. And she has uh. a lovely radio voice. <laughs> Thanks. Well, I will say that was not an easy decision to make. A lot of our friends who are our age... Um, are intentionally not having children because they are very worried about the future that they'd be bringing them up into. But we decided that we have hope for the future. Well, bravo. We know that you have a website and a Facebook page. We'll put those links in with a, with our webpage of information about the podcast. Thank you yeah, all thanks three. thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Okay, and thank you for sharing. Here we are again at Nature Calls, Conversations from the Hudson Valley. Today we're having a conversation with fellow Master Gardener volunteer Robin Stapley. Robin is an enthusiastic practitioner of permaculture at her home and has agreed to give us insights into what permaculture actually is. 
The word permaculture is of pretty basic origins. It's a blend of permanent and agriculture. Robin, how did permaculture come to be? I understand it began in the 70s in Australia. Could you tell us a little bit about that and how it works? Yes, it was started by a couple of men, Molson and Holmgreen, and they devised 12 basic principles that can be used anywhere in the world. And they had decided that using these 12 principles that within one decade, if everybody abided by these 12 principles, that everyone would have clean air, clean water, and plenty of food throughout the whole world. And that hooked me. Okay, that's a lot to absorb. There's a whole movement worldwide to encourage permaculture, right? And it varies by region, as it must be adapted to the ecosystems available. It sounds like at least somebody's trying to combat climate change by making their little part of the earth healthier. Do you have an example? Sure. I immediately after hearing the podcast, I started looking and investigating the 12 principles. The first one I found actually the most difficult, which is to observe your land and see what it wants to do. And I live on a well. And my basic problem was watering my gardens and being conscious of my well. And to do this, my garden always was dry. So I started investigating after several years of observing that how was the best way to work this. And I found that if I dug ditches in and around my garden, two feet deep and two feet across, and filled it with mulch, mostly wood chips. That would be one way of preserving the water that fell during either snowstorms or hurricanes that hit our area. I only have a little less than half an acre, so it's pretty easy to figure the observing out. But the problem that happened was when I dug this dirt, and it was dirt at the bottom of the two feet because it had never had any kind of compost added. What am I going to do? You had to take the dirt out. And I found that hugel culture was the best way to add mulch and make the raised beds and have a place to put these, all this dirt, which would turn into soil. Hugel culture is putting any kind of scrap wood laying lengthwise, starting with the larger ones and filling in with any kind of scrap wood, twigs that are falling and just making a mound and putting this dirt from the ditches that I was making on top of it. And eventually it would rot and in the meantime would add mulch to the system. So, Tim, before I mention that Cornell has a master's program in permaculture. And in fact, all land-grant universities I've looked at have. I'm going to give you the opportunity to say hugel culture. Hugel culture. Yay. I love that word. <laughs> I love that word, hugel culture. And I am so impressed that you were patient and observed your land. I don't think I'd be so patient. I'm completely impatient. So that's wonderful. And you figured out what to do with your land. It's amazing. What needed to come first? and that was my water. And water is a big system all around the world, one of the main reasons it works. And in this program that I took from Oregon State, 
which is a land-grant college also, was a month-long course. They kept on emphasizing that water, water, water is one of the things that's getting worse and worse in our system. But anyway, so I have my garden laid out now. It's larger than it used to be, and I have these paths. And every year or two, you have to fill the paths up. You don't have to do much to the whole culture. <laughs> and so we are working with that system. And one thing you do have to water still, and the only thing I have to water still is my new little seedlings I make. As far as starting the seeds, now let's look at an even smaller kind of home gardening. Let's converse about a method you introduced at a master gardener's meeting. It has elements of recycling, energy conservation, and reduced maintenance gardening. Plus, it's fun to do with kids. It's milk jug winter sowing. I did a little poking around the internet because I was curious about how this particular method started. I mean, we already know about starting seeds in egg cartons and recycled containers, but it was always indoors. So I found out that a woman named Trudy Davidoff was frustrated because she had so little space indoors and figured out how to make mini greenhouses for seeds she knew were hardy. The rest is history. There's even a huge Facebook page dedicated to winter seeding that goes into amazing detail. And YouTube has bunches of videos. Yeah, so what materials do we need to start? How do we put all of this together, Robin? Well, almost everyone has in their house or from their neighbors gallon milk containers or orange juice ones, large ones, and you clean them first. And then you'll need something to poke holes in the very bottom of it for drainage. And I find I have a, a broken tool that works well at that. Just put like 20 or so in the bottom. Then about four inches up, you slice around except where the handle goes down. And you leave about two inches where the handle is connected to the top. And so you, that's the hinge that will help hold it all on together. Next, you need some kind of soil, and it's best to use stuff that's from the store that supposedly is not contaminated with all kinds of things. So that sterilized are soil. Sterilized, perfect yeah. word. And you, this soil, this sterilized mix. mix, you want to put in a large container and put quite a bit of water in it, not so that you wring it out, but so that it's it's nice and moist. That's and then what you, they call friable, just in case you needed to know. And you pat it in to the bottom half of the gallon jug. And then, if you're daring, you can sprinkle seeds on the top and put a little more of the sterile soil on. But I find that... When it grows, you have 50 seeds in this small area, and that doesn't work for me. So what I do, if there's things like broccoli, I put a lot of holes in. But for some things like nasturtium seeds, I will just put 9 or 16 in holes, poking it in with my finger, and put one seed in each one. And put them. I put them outside. Well, first, you have to somehow make some label. You cannot write on the outside of the container, 
I have gotten where I put actually the seed packet inside. Markers will not last well at all. You think you have marked them well enough. Anyways, I find I put the container something inside with what is in there. Usually you can tell generally by the, the leaves, but when it gets into that broccoli family, they all look the same. But anyways, then you tape it. And I always use the strongest duct tape I can because with all the weather it's going to take, it will peel off. And then you put it, I put it in a place where it's against a stone wall and it gets just morning sun and leave it. Keep the top off so air can come in and out and it, it works. So, and what time of year are you doing this? I, I'm, I want to do this right now. Do you do it in February? Do you do it in March? When do you do it? Well, some people say you have to start them later. I do all my seeds in one day. Tomato, coleus, I do them all in one day. And they sprout when they're supposed to sprout. They're outside. And my problem with starting things inside was I always forgot to water them for a week. And you can't forget. And this is wonderful because you don't have to ever water them. And when you see them coming up and they get to have at least four leaves or six leaves, however big you want them, you can take them out and put them into your garden. And they don't start too early. They're magical pieces that God has created. So you take them out of this soil ball when they're big enough with their four leaves. Correct. And now, what I'm seeing recommended is that you take a spoon or something and just lift out chunks of the soil and all and then plant that rather than, than wrestling with little tiny baby seedlings. Yes, you can do that. I haven't. I just pick them up because I have gotten where I do the nine seed thing and then I just can pick up the whole blob and put it in the, in my hugel bed, which okay. is basically all I have there in my garden. Okay, and by the time they're that size, they're already hardened off. Correct. So that gets rid of a whole entire step that you usually do if you're starting yes. things indoors. Okay. And are you doing this with tomatoes and pet, like hot weather plants yes. as well? And I, I don't know if you answered my question. If what, what time of year? When are you? When are you planting those? I always do it in the last week in February or the first week in March. Really, that early? Okay, yep. interesting. And they don't sprout until they want to sprout, is what you're saying. Until they're supposed to. I've <laughs> never had any die because of temperature that have sprouted. Never. And I've been doing it years. You're a hugel lady, a historian hugel person. <laughs> <laughs> now, if for those who really want to see a, an interesting, well, you can watch... A YouTube, instead of imagining Robin talking with her hands, which she's doing very eloquently. <laughs> yeah, there is a link to that. It's the Master Gardeners at the University of Maryland have made a wonderful photo presentation. It's called All the Dirt on Winter Sowing. Well, today we've talked about permaculture on a grand scale to heal the earth, then a particular hogoculture garden. Then we even got to a smaller scale with some milk jug gardening that I'm really interested in trying. It can be used to start the seeds to plant the permaculture gardens to heal the earth. Holy circle of life. I'm hungry now. Me too.
That concludes another episode of Nature Calls, Conversations from a Hudson Valley. We would like to thank Sandra Linnell and Devin Connolly from Cornell Cooperative Extension of Columbia and Green Counties for production support. And a special thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of Nature Calls, Conversations from the Hudson Valley. You can find links to any of the topics mentioned in this episode at our website at ccecolumbiagreen.org. Comments and suggestions for future topics may be directed to us at columbiagreenmgb at cornell.edu or on the CCE Master Gardener Volunteers of Columbia and Green County's Facebook page. For more information about Cornell Cooperative Extension of Columbia and Green Counties, visit our website at ccecolumbiagreen.org or visit us in Hudson or in Acre. Cornell Cooperative Extension provides equal programming and employment opportunities 